New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. Today, we're looking at what Unai Emery has done to elevate Aston Villa, the genius of Luka Modric, and the potential uses of AI in the beautiful game. Spoiler alert, it's kind of scary. My name's Ryan Bailey. Today's show is a dynamic duo. I'm joined by question answer extraordinaire, Mr. Graham Ruthven. Howdy, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. That is quite the billing. I'm hoping that it is accurate today. We'll we'll see with uh, some of that AI stuff. I, I I kind of stopped myself from delving too deep into into that future, just because, as you say, kind of terrifying. It kind of is, Graham. You're quite right. It wasn't like the leaders of Google and other such uh, organizations are saying, "Yeah, we should pump the brakes on this thing." <laughs> it is kind of scary to consider. And if just bear in mind, if either of us underperform today, Graham, we're getting AI'd, um, replaced pretty soon, I would imagine. So. No pressure, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, I, I, I presumed that was happening anyway, to be honest. <laughs> it's only a matter of time, I suppose. Uh, but I'll tell you what can't be done on AI. Beautiful Patreon videos by Graham Ruthven and his latest exploits following Sterling Albion. I understand, Graham, according to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, you saw a game of the soccer at the Dumbarton. Well done. And- I know. What a revelation. I, I went to a football stadium in Dumbarton and I saw an actual game of football. It was a terrible game of football. Barely any chances created. Finished nil-nil. <laughs> but it was enough for Sterling Albion to effectively clinch the title. Three games to go, nine points ahead. We've got a big goal difference advantage over Dumbarton as well. So I had a little tipple last night. Uh, didn't go fully over over the top. I'm, I'm not hung over anything this morning, but if we win it on Saturday, then uh, Sunday might be a little bit rough. Okay, what's the choice of tipple, incidentally? Oh, just just a boring beer, a basic beer, a basic beer, a bowly beer, Bud Light. That that is the bowly beer. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Uh, I did enjoy it in the video, by the way, Graham. The locale of Dumbarton Stadium. I hope you don't mind me complimenting Dumbarton. I know how you feel about them, but like it was a very nice sunny evening when you were there, and then I noticed a giant body of water directly next to the pitch yeah. at the same level of the pitch. So I'm kind of understanding why they have so many postponements and why they're soggy pitch FC now. There was also a guy in a, in a rowboat at halftime. I put that in the video, which yep. was bizarre. Uh, but yeah, it is quite a nice location when it is a sunny night. It's just obviously central Scotland. So there aren't many of those sunny nights. And when it rains just a little bit, their pitch is completely unplayable. So not very good for Scottish football. All right, then. Plenty more to be found on that on our Patreon. Uh, plenty of bonus episodes there, too. There's a nice video of Joe Lowry um, filming his shoes for six seconds while watching the USMNT <laughs> train in Arizona as well. I do recommend that. Um, Joe and Taylor, by the way, not with us on this episode because they are off covering the USMNT's uh, friendly with Mexico 
uh, they've gone to a different place than the place that Joe lives in where <laughs> yeah. the game is being held, which for uh, reasons, I suppose. But uh, we uh, they'll, they'll be on the feed, I imagine, uh, reporting from that very shortly. Uh, Graham, what say you and I get to some listener questions? Should we do it? Let's do it. All right, Richard Rolson, Alliterations Richard Rolson has been back in touch. Thank you very much, Richard. He says, Luka Modric continues to defy father time and deliver amazing performances for Real Madrid. He's arguably one of the best players in European football over the last dozen years. Yet when discussing the best footballers, he'll often be overlooked unless one is discussing Real Madrid specifically. Who for you guys are some other players that could be part of the best players discussion that often get overlooked unless you're talking about their club or country teams. So first of all, Graham, to tackle the actual premise of Richard's question here, do we think that the Ballon d'Or winner, six-time FIFA Pro World yeah. 11 member, six-time Champions League team of the season uh, member, Luka Modric, is uh, overlooked at all? So I was going to push back on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think that was once true of Luka Modric, that he maybe didn't get the credit that he deserved. But as you say, he is a, a Ballon d'Or winner. I probably would have him as the best midfielder of all time at this point. I know some people might say Xavi, and he was obviously brilliant as well, but Modric just does things at, at a much faster pace, and I find that more impressive. And I, I don't feel like I am alone in having him in that conversation as one of the best midfielders of all time. But let's let's kind of take the the premise of Richard's question, you know, overlooked players in history, and I would put forward as my candidate... Wayne Rooney. So he oh. is England's and Man United's all-time top goal scorer. Is he England's top think... goal scorer, Graham? Is he? Or was it Harry oh, Kane Oh, he's not anymore, is he? Is he? It's <laughs> Harry Kane now, of course. Okay, he is second. He is England's second all-time top goal scorer. And I think if you were to ask most people who has been the best striker of the last 20 years, I reckon most people would have Rooney quite far down the list. And I, th- I think that's maybe unfair. And and the context with Rooney is that for all his brilliance, he did sort of underachieve in his career, which says a lot about the potential that he had. I remember when he broke through as a teenager for Everton and then for England at Euro 20, uh, 2004. He was absolutely sensational in Euro 2004. People genuinely thought he was going to be one of the best players of all time. And then Rooney was unfortunate to be at my United at the same time when Cristiano Ronaldo exploded. And that yardstick, yardstick didn't really help him either. So uh, there is context as to why maybe people don't think of Rooney as one of the best strikers of all time. But he was a phenomenal player in his own right. He has the records to show for it as well for club and country. And maybe his peak came a little bit earlier when he, when he was younger. I think Rooney was at his most devastating when he was a, a teenager and when he was in his early 20s. So maybe that's a factor as well. People kind of remember him for the player he was in his 30s when he wasn't as effective. But... That doesn't change how good he was over the course of his career. So, Luka Modric, if he defies Father Time, could you say that Rooney's the opposite and Father Time very much caught up he, with yeah, him he, early on? He obeyed Father Time, <laughs> <laughs> very much so. <laughs> Father Time sent him to dinner with no supper and he agreed, yes. Because, uh, I mean, when you look at him now and Ronaldo, are they like, I think they're like the same age or they're very close to being the same age. And it's I feel quite... like Rooney's actually younger than Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. And you look at Rooney now as DC United manager... Um, and look, let's not be too unkind, but there's a difference between Ronaldo uh, and his uh, physique and R- Rooney's physique, let's just say. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'll put forward, Graham, as my first nomination for this question. Thomas Muller, mm. who has won absolutely everything for Bayern Munich, of course. He's won the World Cup, consistently excellent in his role as the Raumdeuter, the uh, creator of space. But when you talk about the big 
player conversations and even like the Ballon d'Or rankings, he's never quite up there despite being consistently excellent. And you only really think of him when you think of Bayern Munich. And even then you don't think of him potentially as their most prominent player. Yep, that's entirely fair. So when you think of Bayern Munich over the last 10 years, I think of Robert Lewandowski and even this current team. I think of players like Joshua Kimmich and uh, Serge Gnabry and Müller doesn't really enter the conversation. Germany as well. I, I think of kind of sexier players like Meza Ozil and obviously Mario Goetze winning the World Cup final. Thomas Müller. Thomas Müller was a top goal scorer at a World Cup, right? I didn't imagine that. Was it that 2010 right. that he was top goal scorer? He was certainly around that, that, that mark. So, yep, good shout. Thank you very much. How about another German who plays alongside Luka Modric, or has done certainly for Yes, I think? knew you would have yeah? him on. I yeah? knew you'd have him on your list. It's a Tony good Chris. shout, though. Tony it Chris is, is a good shout. Yeah, I mean he is certainly overlooked, and of course there is the the Ryan Bailey Tony Cruz theory that when mm-hmm. he plays well, Real Madrid play well. But he's a player that's won. Well, what has he won? He's won Champions League with two different clubs, with Bayern Munich and with Real Madrid. He's he's won a World Cup as well. He's obviously won countless league titles with Bayern Munich and, and Real Madrid. He's played under Pep. He's played under Carlo Ancelotti. Um, I think he's a little bit of, of a victim of what I would call Michael Carrick syndrome, where because he's not very flashy and he likes Robbie Williams and uh, he's kind of quite simple in the way that he plays. He doesn't get talked about, but yeah, he's he's obviously so good at what he does with the ball. He, he likes Robbie Williams. Is this like, a are they friends or something? He is a massive Robbie Williams fan. It's kind of weird. Just like you. You, you, you told us on the uh, Soccer 101 that you oh, went we to go. Take That concert, right? So you, take you... That, he, he wasn't at the Take That concert, Ryan. He's the one who turned them down. It was Take That minus Robbie Williams. Come on. Sure. Get up on your, Robin, uh, your uh, Take That knowledge there. You'd know, pal. You'd know. All right. Well, um, <laughs> any other nominations, Graham? I'm going to throw one more at you, and I don't know quite if he fits into it, but Prime Dries Mertens. What do you think about that? Because he's just a player that I really, really enjoy watching and have done historically, particularly with the Napoli side. And with Belgium, obviously one of their starlets as well, but Mm. never once again defies defies the father time to a certain extent, but never quite up there in the top conversation. Yeah, certainly a very good player. The only thing I would say about Dries Mertens is all these players that we've mentioned so far have kind of won everything. Mm -hmm. And I think Dries Mertens was unfortunate to be in teams, both for club and country, that were the kind of nearly men of football. So Napoli came very close to winning, winning Scudetto's, un, Scudetto's under Maurizio Sarri, and then Belgium, of course, World Cup semi-finalists, um, finished third in the World Cup, I think. So he never really kind of ended up with the silverware to show for his ability, and maybe that affects how we think of him. My, my, my final suggestion, I'm going to go back maybe a couple decades. I am going to mention Guti who played for Real Madrid in Spain. So there was a clip of Cavara Donna recently where he was asked who his idol has been as a kid. And usually footballers will say, you know, Messi or Ronaldo or Zidane or someone like that. He said Guti. And and I love that he said Guti because Guti was so, so good. Mm. And he suffered from being in a Real Madrid team that also included Zidane and Figo and Ronaldo and all those guys. But... He was he was incredible. He also played for a Spain team that, you know, Spain when he was when he was in that national team, they they were underachievers, and he he kind of faded just before they became a tier one national team, and they started winning Euros and World Cups. So I think he also suffers in that regard that he's kind of the era before Spain's golden generation. Yeah. But nonetheless, the things he did with the football were ridiculous. 
That is a great shout, Graham. There are videos on YouTube of David Beckham assists at Real Madrid, which have like gajillion views. But there are also Gooty assist videos because some of the assists he did were terrific as well. And they probably got tens of uh, thousands of views rather exactly. than gajillions. So yeah, that's, that's quite right. I like that a lot. Um, one more I'll throw at you before we move on for this question. Sergio Busquets? Yay? Um, in that he's a defensive midfielder and so he's never going to win a Ballon d'Or, is he? He's never going to be up there. But my counterpoint to that would be that people talk about the Busquets role in the same way that mm. people talked about like the Makaleli role. And so he has kind of changed perceptions of that position. But I get what you're saying. He's he he as I say, he's not gonna be he's not gonna win any individual awards, is he? Indeed, indeed. Good food for thought there, Richard. Thank you very much for your question. Let's go to Kenneth Sidon. Hey, Kenneth. Uh, Kenneth is asking, are there any sporting directors that have had sustained success at multiple clubs? Very good question. I think for the sake of the question, Graham, we'll, we'll say sporting director and director of football are essentially the yes. same thing. I think that's fair enough. I've got a couple on my list. The first one I'll list off is, I'm thinking one's going to be near the top of yours, Chiki Bajiristan. Yeah. Who, is the direct, who was the director of football at Barcelona from 2003 to 2010. You may remember Barcelona got, were quite good in that era, got quite good towards the end of that era, certainly. And he followed, uh, well, he went to Man City in 2012. So he was there. He, he is there now with uh, Pep Guardiola as well. So that's two very high profile roles he's had there. One of which he's won a Champions League with. Yeah, and I think he might be adding another one to his collection this season, the way mm. things are going. Yes, he was very much... On my list, I'm glad that you got to that pronunciation before me, despite the fact that I have written his name his name many times over the years. I I've find never it, quite I find it easier it. to uh, pronounce than to write. I will say that much. How do you say it? Say it again. Cheeky Bajiristan. Bajiristan, right? Okay. Bajiristan. I, I go soft G. Right. You're, you're hard G. I go soft G for Bajiristan. <laughs> hard G. That's what my friends call me. <laughs> Um, yeah, Bagaristan was is on my list. Luis Campos is also on my list. He was maybe the first name that sprung to mind for me. So he built that great Monaco team that, funnily enough, uh, knocked Man City, Bagaristan's Man City, out of the Champions League. That was a team that included Mbappe and Bernardo Silva and uh, Thomas Lamar and Bakayoko, who was good at that time before he went to Chelsea. And he kind of scouted those those players and found them and signed them and, and, and built that side. He then went to Lille and he built the team that beat PSG to the, the league on title a couple seasons ago. And now he's obviously at PSG where things haven't been easy for him. But his 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 resume is, is, is pretty impressive. And the fact that PSG went for him in the first place, I think, says a lot about his reputation. Another one, um, and this isn't a perfect example because he hasn't technically been a sporting director at every club he's worked at but Paul Mitchell um, is highly regarded an Englishman he uh, he worked at Spurs when Pochettino was there he then went to RB Leipzig and now he has been at Monaco second mention of Monaco there and um, he's been there for a few years now and he's always mentioned in regards to Manchester and Liverpool always always get mentioned I think he's from the northwest of England I think he might even be a Manchester United fan and so with the takeover chat and obviously recently Manchester United uh, appointed John, John Murtaugh as their sporting director, there's always been this idea that Paul Mitchell will go to Manchester United at some point and, and get a big high-profile job there. I think he will get a high-profile job in the Premier League at some point. So yeah, Mitchell, as I say, he hasn't always been the sporting director. I think he was some sort of recruitment head at Spurs. Um, but effectively, that is the job that he's done over the course of his career. Okay. 
there's there's one other name I'll throw into the mix, Graham. And I don't know whether you can call it sustained success, excuse me, but it's a name who you hear used a lot in sporting director roles and who has had a lot of jobs. It's Frank Arneson, who oh, yeah. Premier League fans might know the best because he was sporting director at both Tottenham and Chelsea. But if you look on his Wikipedia, you could play a very long Wikipedia game of sporting directors with Frank Arneson. He's got Hamburg on there, Metalist Kharkiv, he was there, Pauk. Uh, Anderlecht, he's, he's most recently been at Feyenoord as well, back in his uh, home wow, nation. Wow, that is a list. <laughs> he's got a long list there, Graham. Yeah, so I d- maybe that means he's not been successful at multiple clubs. Maybe it's the opposite. But he's certainly one of those names you would consider in the top tier when you're thinking of sporting directors. Five years at Chelsea. I'd kind of forgotten that he'd been at Chelsea for that long. Um, was he successful in those five years? Yeah, I guess Chelsea were successful in that time. You know, Champions League finals, league titles... He must have been involved in Carlo Ancelotti coming to Chelsea around that time. So I guess maybe Chelsea, this is where Chelsea fans at me on Twitter and tell me that he was absolutely horrendous. But it seems like he, his time at Chelsea coincided with a, with a pretty successful period for that club. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just Googling now to see if um, his time at Tottenham coincided with their famous Audi Cup win. Um, <laughs> let me check. Let's see. Tottenham 2004, 2005. Oh, he was before it. He was before ah. the League Cup. He was before the League Cup, the famous League Cup win as well. Goodness me. Maybe he laid the, uh, the, laid the paving work for that wonderful Indeed. trophy uh, lift that they had. Perhaps, Graham, should we, is it worth actually laying out how important a sporting director is to a successful side? If you're going to use like a, a movie analogy, so the actors are the players, the director is the manager, the, sport, the sporting director or director of football is kind of the producer the person who yeah. actually brings the whole project together. Or or like the showrunner in TV terms. Right. Like Jesse Armstrong of, of the football world. Jesse Armstrong writes Succession mm. and I think uh, controls that entire world. And so that's what a sporting director is. Yeah, sporting director in modern terms is someone who just kind of Im- implements a, a, a coherent and clear and overarching um, vision for a club. So it could that, that could encapsulate recruitment um of both first team players and youth academy players it obviously involves the appointment of a manager it, a, a good sporting director the, everything will be along the same kind of line of thinking which is something that Begeristein has done and in fact he was hired before Pep Guardiola arrived at Man City to kind of put in place the groundwork so that when Guardiola arrived in 2016 he already kind of had a head start in that regard yeah, and it was uh, Ferran Soriano, I believe, is the, uh, the CEO as well, who came with him. Both basically said, look, we've got your Barcelona guys. Pep, come over, come over. And it worked. <laughs> it worked indeed. Uh, Kenneth, thank you very much for that question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be going down to the English Championship to talk a little bit about Luton Town. We're going to be talking about Unai Emery and AI coming to take all our jobs. Back shortly. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom, cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. 
Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Matt Adler has been in touch and asks, how have Luton Town been so successful? Uh, They've been in League Two as recently as uh, 2018 and five years out of the EFL from 2009 to 2014 when they're in non-league. Now they're almost guaranteed a playoff spot in the championship without Sotheran wealth or movie star cash, at least as far as Matt could find. That is true. But he hasn't heard much about them, says Matt. So it's interesting to plot the course of Luton's success, I'll say, Graham. Um, Luton, of course, sort of... mm, Kind of, it's Watford is the closest club to them, I'd say, closest big club. North, the north of London. as you call Luton. Yeah, exactly. Well, Watford is the official line of where the north begins. <laughs> it's just above the M25 in London. So, that's oh, the Highlands. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, nosebleed territory. So Luton's mm. up there. Um, they're called the Hatters. They are called that, Graham, because the hat making trade has been in Luton since the 17th century. Didn't know that. There you go. Didn't know that. Learn something. Every day's a school day. Um, they have a very uh, small airport where you get very cheap budget flights to uh, oh, European oh, yeah, you destinations. <laughs> Been there many times. Uh, but more relevant to this podcast, they are third in the championship, as Matt says now, all but guaranteed a playoff spot. Uh, as we recall, they're actually playing Reading tonight. Reading a relegation threatened, so they will further enforce that position. But Luton, to me, Graham, when I saw this question... It's interesting because they've been on a bit of a roller coaster. They, they were very successful in like the 50s and 60s. They were a top flight club from 81 to 91 as well. They kind of fell off from the top flight during the Premier League era, essentially, and then kind of dropped through. They had financial troubles, uh, um, went into administration, a 30-point deduction in 2008-09 for financial regularities, and then in uh, 2009 dropped into non-league. They're arguably the most famous part of their history, Graham, the 2011 conference playoff final. That's the game that gets you into the league structure, gets you into League Two. Famously defeated on penalties by AFC Wimbledon at Manchester City's Eastland Stadium. Famous. Famous for me being there as well and watching uh, Danny Kedwell <laughs> score the winning penalty for AFC Wimbledon. AFC Wimbledon famously returning to the league instead of Luton, but Luton um, came back eventually. And now, as Matt says, flying, potentially 
uh, to the doorstep of the Premier League here. So it, when I consider Luton, Graham, maybe this is a unique perspective, but I consider them a big, small club. They are a club I, that's had a lot of heritage, but they're still tiny and have a mm. tiny stadium. I like how you gloated over that playoff win and then followed it by saying, and now Luton are on the brink of the Premier League. And now and, they've uh, massively uh, overtaken <laughs> us, yes. <laughs> AFC Wimbledon are not there at Correct. all. Yeah. Um, yeah, Matt is right in his question that the rise has been remarkable. Um, I think we all know now, thanks to Ryan, Ryan Reynolds and that other Wrexham guy, um, just how difficult it is. <laughs> To get out of the, the National League, and not only did Luton do it, um, as we've just said, and as we've referenced already, they're on the brink of promotion to the Premier League. Um, and as far as I could tell, and I, and I kind of went down the rabbit hole on this, and I listened to a couple podcasts and read some articles, as far as I could tell, they have had a series of great managers for them. So Joe Kinnear was their manager. Oh, I said I, ha- I said they've had a series of some great managers, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Joe Kinnear maybe not included <laughs> in that list, but one who certainly is um, included in that list, someone that I wasn't familiar with until I started my research, but is a man called John Still. So he's the manager who guided them out of the National League and back into the EFL. And when they dropped down to the National League, he completely rebuilt the squad. So Still apparently was a bit of a specialist in getting teams out of the National League. He'd been at Dagenham and Redbridge um, for a number of years. And as I say, he completely rebuilt that squad from the ground up. He found Andre Gray, who scored uh, for fun in the lower leagues. And then he ended up in the Premier League with with, with Burnley and Watford, I think he was with. Um, But as I say, still was a specialist in taking teams out of non-league football. He had done it three times before. And I think Luton were quite fortunate to get him. So he takes them up to League Two. He unfortunately kind of finds his ceiling still at that point and can't take the team any further. And that's when they found Nathan Jones. And I know this will be unbelievable to anyone whose only exposure to to Joan was his disastrous time at Southampton Mm. this season where it couldn't really have gone much worse. And he's a bit of a weird dude, I have to say, Nathan Jones. But there's just something about that relationship with with Luton Town. It has worked very well. He had no managerial experience at the time of his appointment, but he started signing experienced League Two veterans um, and they got promoted. Jones then left for Stoke City, obviously Stoke being a, a bigger job than Luton Town. That didn't work out for Nathan Jones and he was brought back to Luton very quickly and they improved again. And Luton have just made a, a great use of free transfers and loan deals. They've only ever spent more than £1 million on a, a player once in their history. Um, in terms of how they use the loan market, James Bree is a good example of this. So he was a, a standout player for Barnsley in the English Championship. And when he was at Barnsley, Luton could never have got anywhere near him. They just didn't have the budget for that. And he went to Aston Villa for £3 million. Bree didn't really do much for Aston Villa. So when he was available on loan, Luton went for him and ended up with one of the best defenders in the championship. And they've done that a number of times with players, maybe players that have been chewed up and spat out by bigger clubs. They end up getting them on free transfers. They end up picking them up on loan. And they kind of end up building a team that in terms of their budget is is better than their budget should allow. I think off the pitch as well, some important things have, have happened. So there is fan representation in their club structure through the, the supporters trust. And there has also been, I read quite a bit about this, there's also been campaigns to draw South Asian fans to the club. So Luton has a, a very big Pakistani and Bangladeshi community. And in the past, uh, Luton Town 
has had quite a a a a, a, a far right element in in their support. Their fans used to sing about Tommy Robinson, who Ryan, I'm sure you know, you've heard of Tommy Robinson, not a very nice person in uh, in, in in British. You mean Stephen Yaxley Lennon? Him exactly, Yaxley Yaxley Lennon to give him his his real name. Um, that has been eradicated over the last 10 years. And so there's been much more community buy-in with, with Luton Town. I think that has been important in propelling the club forward. I was reading that. I'm not sure if they've been approved yet or maybe they're still up for kind of council planning permission approval, but they have plans for a new stadium. So they play at this tiny little stadium called Kenilworth, Kenilworth Road. And that kind of limits their resources as a club. It's one of the smallest stadiums, not just in the English Championship, but actually one of the smallest stadiums in the whole of the EFL. They've got plans for a 23-seater, 23,000-seater stadium. And I think without that community buy-in, without that campaign to to kind of draw South Asian fans to the club, maybe those plans don't happen. So I'm not sure there is one single thing that has pushed Luton up the leagues, but they, they are certainly a success story that gives, gives hope to other clubs on smaller budgets in the AFL. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, Kenilworth Road is... Um quite a peculiar ground you might have seen it listener if you've seen like they I mean, a few years ago they played Liverpool in the FA Cup I'm saying a few years ago like Jamie Carragher and Stephen Gerrard were playing in that game and it got very heated I seem to remember but Kenilworth Road is that when you look at the stands from the TV camera it looks a bit like DC United with like the, the, yeah, it the does. glass with the porch patio <laughs> kind of glass so you don't see a lot of fans opposite the uh, the TV gantry and yeah just over 10,000 capacity which uh, I think Bournemouth is like it's like twelve thousand or something, isn't it? So and Bournemouth is tiny for for, mm. for Premier League standards. So I think they'd have to make it uh, do some extending work should they get to the Premier League promised land. But it's incredible, Graham, that they are in third. They are doing very well. They they've clearly got a good game plan going. But also, there's another team in the Championship playoffs who have never been in the Premier League like Luton. It's Millwall, who are a bigger team than Luton. Uh, Southeast. They're actually technically the closest team to where I grew up, like 10 minutes from my house, basically. Um, and Millwall have a, the den in um, South East London is, is pretty big. I think it's like 20,000 seater, very loyal supporter base. Also issues with their right wing contingent like Luton have had as well. And I think Luton and Millwall games are quite tasty as the gentlemen who attend those clubs would say. Um, but we c- there's a scenario where the playoffs will have two teams who have never been in the Premier League before, which I don't think has happened in a very long time. And I, I love to see it, frankly. If, if Luton got through, I think they would find it very hard to compete in the Premier League, as would Millwall, yeah. to be fair, because ne- neither of them has, as uh, as Matt says in his question, sovereign wealth or anything like that. But what I can, can uh, put to you, Graham, is that you don't need sovereign wealth or Ryan Reynolds money, Mint Mobile money, to get to the Premier League. And to get up that far, you just need a good game plan and a decent amount of money behind you and a decent supporter base. It's when you get to that Premier League level when you really do need to step things up. Yeah, there's always an excitement when a kind of smaller club does win promotion to the Premier League and it's a bit of a novelty. So obviously we've kind of got used to Bournemouth being in the Premier League, but I remember when Bournemouth got promoted under Eddie Howe. That was an incredible story. I remember the season when Blackpool were in the Premier League. Yeah. They got relegated straight back down. But I'm old enough to remember Swindon being in the Premier League, Graham. Wow, I don't remember that at, <laughs> at all. When they was that? That must have been 90s, right? That was at the very start. Yeah, they were terrible. Yeah, I, I don't remember that at all. In fact, I couldn't maybe couldn't even have told you that Swindon Town had been a, a Premier League club. Yep. But yeah, unfortunately, it, it would take a real leap forward for Luton Town or even Millwall to be competitive at Premier League level. But when you consider how far they've come, 
from um, non-league football. I, I, I was reading, I don't have this in my research notes, so I'm kind of going off the top of my head. I'm not entirely sure there's another club that has played at kind of all five levels of English football before, going from non-league well, this is where we get into dodgy territory, whereas, you know, AFC Wimbledon is it the same club as a different club. In Seoul, it's the same club, but mm. I get, I, I take that, uh, that, that <laughs> Listen, suggestion. I excitedly put my hand up to interrupt Graham there without saying anything as to imply that Wimbledon very much have been in every league. Yeah. So, Luton Town and Wimbledon. There you go. Peace <laughs> in a pod. Exactly. And um, one doing much better than the other. But uh, as I say, I'd, I'd love to have either Luton or Millwall in the Premier League next year. Um, I think that'd be awesome. I love it when a new team joins um, and survives. That'll be even better. That'll be wonderful. Okay, thank you very much, Madler, for that question. Ira Jersey has been in touch. Hello, Ira. Uh, Ira says, which precise tactical adjustments has Unai Emery made at Aston Villa? And are they sustainable? It is, Graham, quite incredible what Emery has done at Aston Villa. Seven wins in his last eight, and they are top four contenders in the Premier League. Mm. They're six points off the top four as we record. When he took over last October, um, Aston Villa were in 17th, one point above the relegation zone. And since he took over, if you count the, the points from when he took over to now, Villa will be third, only behind Arsenal and Man City. <laughs> That's insane. He's not, I mean, he's made some signings, but not spent an insane mm. amount, not gone Chelsea mad or anything like that. It's incredible. It's not a good look for Stevie G, is it? That. <laughs> it's not, no. No, no not. not not at all. Um, yeah, I am pleased that Ira has has sent in this question because Villa are a late developing story in this Premier League season mm. that definitely deserves some attention. I, I felt that in the last kind of, two weekend reviews that we've we've done where I get this sense of we kind of need to be talking about Aston Villa here because we've talked about obviously the top four battle we've talked about Newcastle United a lot this season and we haven't really spent much time talking about Aston Villa because they have been kind of dodging around in mid-table but all of a sudden they are in top four contention I think the top four is going to be just beyond them if I'm being honest but certainly a top six finish is is, is on for them and Unai Emery is is really proving a lot of his doubters wrong. Obviously, he had that ill-fated time at Arsenal. He kind of became a bit of a figure of of fun, of derision during his time in the Premier League, which was was never really fair. And so, from his point of view, and um, for his sake, I I I am I'm happy that he is doing well at Aston Villa. So let's look at some of the tactical stuff. Um, at Villarreal, he used a four four two shape, and I think a lot of people expected him to use similar at Aston Villa, and he he did this in some of his early matches, including the win over Manchester United just before the the World Cup. Since then, there's been a little bit more fluidity between that four four two and a four two three one, but the the principles remain the same. So the idea is that Ollie Watkins has Emi Bundia or Leon Bailey pushed up alongside him. And then it's John McGinn and Ramsey pushed out into the into the wide positions, but they are kind of tucked inside those players, and you have fullbacks flying forward. So on the left side, that's been Moreno for for uh, for Villa, and then Ashley Young on the right side. I can't quite believe that Ashley Young is still an important player at Premier Premier League level at this stage of his career, but having that outlet is 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 key for Aston Villa. Um, they've actually been linked with Denzel Dumfries this week which kind of says that Emery is focusing on maybe upgrading that position because it is so important to his team. And Denzel Dumfries would be a huge statement signing for Villa. I think he'd be brilliant for them. Um, 
in terms of the general approach, he wants Emery wants Villa to play out from the back. He's got Douglas Louise and Kamara in central midfield. Both of those players like to kickstart attacks from deep positions, and that gives Villa those moments of transition that they are very, very dangerous in. And and the whole attacking game plan, in essence, is to feed the feed the balls into the number tens, um, which you could argue there are there are three of in the form of McGinn, Buendia, and Ramsey. And then the the wide players occupy the half spaces and, and they move it around the opposition, they feed the number 10s and then they spring direct attacks in those wide areas. That's the attacking game plan. There is a little bit of overlap between that game plan and, and what Steven Gerrard wanted to do. He also kind of played dual number 10s behind a central striker. But I think the the directness in the wide areas is maybe the biggest difference between the two teams. Emery is... is much more willing to allow his wide players to join in the attack and make it kind of a bank of five in the final third. And we saw that work very, very well in that win over Newcastle at the weekend. In terms of it being sustainable, yeah, I I, I think it probably is. I mean, I mean, it, I guess it depends what, what you mean. I mean, is every game, uh, winning every game sustainable as Villa have done these past couple of months? No, of course not. But in terms of taking a kind of broader look at things, I do think there's a lot about this system and the way that Emery coaches this team to suggest that it is sustainable. I, I always think that teams that play a very intense, high-energy game are more, are more prone to drop-offs. Um, and I, I would look at Marcelo Bielsa's leads for an example of that. Th- there is an intensity to Emery's Villa, but they are you know, a general, generally quite a compact team um, and their strength is more in kind of organisation and awareness of, of space and positional discipline. They, they aren't a team that is kind of running around like headless chickens for 90 minutes and, and covering a lot of grounds and making a lot of defensive actions high up the pitch. That's not really their game. Um, so I expect them to be competitive again next season and that's the really exciting bit for Aston Villa fans is this is a club that has shown ambition since they have returned to the Premier League. Aston Villa is a big club, a a club that has achieved a lot over the course of their history. In terms of resources, they aren't backed by sovereign wealth fund or anything like that, but they do have money and they have spent money over the last few years. The missing piece of the puzzle has been the manager from Dean Smith to then Steven Gerrard. And now they've got Unai, Unai Emery and it just feels like Unai Emery is the perfect fit for this team, for this club. And the exciting thing is thinking about not just what they might achieve this season, but what they might achieve next season and beyond. Europa League win next season, presumably, is what's going to happen, right? <laughs> that is uh, Unai Emery's World Cup. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's so. what he goes for in every job. It is, it is just truly incredible what he's got out of Ollie Watkins as well, who is uh, in incredible form with this Aston Villa season too. Graham, if if Arsenal win the Premier League, I think it's fair to say Mikel Arteta is manager of the year. If Arsenal do not win the Premier League, surely Mikel, uh, surely Uno Emery excuse me, has to be manager of the year. He would certainly be in the discussion. I mean, not not Nathan Jones, no? Is he not in in, in the candidates? The aforementioned Southampton manager who lasted, <laughs> what was it, like a month? Um, I say no. No, probably not. Gary O'Neill, I think if he keeps Bournemouth up, I mentioned him in the weekend review, he would... Pe- uh, managers who keep teams up never get mentioned in regards to Manager of the Year mm. awards, and I think that's very unfair. Bournemouth have the weakest squad in the whole Premier League, so if he keeps them up... He should be in the discussion. But yeah, if Unai Emery, what did you say third since he's taken over that job yeah, in the Premier League? Only Arsenal and City have got more points in that period since he took over in October. 
that's incredible because while that is a talented squad that Aston Villa have, it's not more talented than, you know, Manchester United and certainly Chelsea and all those teams. And for, so for him to be up there is remarkable. It is indeed. Well done, Unai Emery from Total Soccer Show. And thank you, Ira, for the question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about captain's armbands and we're going to tackle that big, scary AI question back shortly. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listener Questions. Michael Hastings Black, hello, sir. Michael says, when the captain of a team is subbed off, does he or she decide who to give the captain's armband to? Assuming a co-captain or vice isn't on the field uh this feels like a fairly quick response to this one graham because the manager chooses the captain right yeah as far as i know it'll be up to the manager and the coaching staff to decide who gets the yeah. uh who gets the armband i mean oftentimes it'll just go to whoever the oldest or longest serving player on the pitch is at that time and i guess i guess a lot of elite level teams also have this thing called a leadership group now so you just kind of move through the leadership the leadership group. So, for example, I know that Arsenal's group is Martin Odegaard, Gabriel Jesus, Granit Xhaka, and Zinchenko. So there's probably not many occasions when all four of those players are off the pitch. And if it is, if they, if they are off the pitch, excuse me, it's probably in a match or a period of a match where it doesn't really matter who gets the armband. So they'll probably just give it to whoever the kind of the most senior player is on the pitch at that time. Yeah, and reading up on this, Graham, I didn't realise that some clubs do have a tradition of giving the armband always to the longest-serving player. I think Real Madrid, for a long period, have had that, or did certainly operate that um, policy, for example. I didn't quite realise that was a a tradition at certain clubs, but um, makes sense, right? I think it's more of a tradition at non-British clubs. I personally feel like British clubs, and certainly the England national team, put a great focus on the captaincy that it doesn't really happen in other countries and so in Spain and 
in Italy and France and whatever, I think they just they just give it to whoever the oldest player is, as you say. Give it Modric. Give it Modric, is what they should say. <laughs> Father time has been defied. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for that question. Um, Sagar Sirimajiri has been back in touch. Whew, here we go, Graham. It's a scary AI question. Uh-oh. Yep. How would you see AI impacting soccer in the future? Could AI come up with fundamentally different formations or tactics recently the u.s open tennis account made an april fool tweet about giving ai coaching to players could coaching possibly be used to replace uh, possibly be replaced by ai excuse me uh, and also a ps from cigar for you graham a big thanks to graham for introducing him to iron brew it's darn expensive to get <laughs> in the u.s but i'm enjoying making it a part of my daily nutrition plan cigar listen don't don't make anything scottish part of your yeah, nutrition plan say, please don't do that i was, was going to say iron brew should not be a part of anyone's daily nutrition plan all i'm <laughs> saying is that scotland has the lowest life expectancy of any country in the uk so yeah. take from that what you will who, who do you think has a better reputation for frying foods is it the us or scotland i feel like scotland would <laughs> deep fry everything yeah. <laughs> wonderful stuff anyway back to the main question at hand here it does seem in all areas of life we're at this we're at the precipice of something really big with AI, artificial intelligence, aren't we, Graham? It's going to change our lives. It's already changed. Chat GPT is already becoming very big. We're seeing a lot of... Uh, there was a story this week in the art world about a, 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 a photographer who took a prize-winning photograph and admitted later it was AI and he refused to accept the award because of that. It was just challenging the uh, the norms which are going to be challenged again and again. Was it that picture of the Pope in the big puffer jacket? Which was also an AI thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is super convincing and it's it's... it's it's just like our kids, Graham, are going to have a scary world where right and wrong are going to and what's fake and what's so real. So I've kind of I've kind of always prided myself on, you know, maybe an older someone older or my parents will show me something and they think it's real. And to me, someone I like to think of as quite internet savvy, I can mm. spot instantly, Mum, that's that's not real. That's been photoshopped. <laughs> that is going to become impossible in yep. the future with with AI. I am going to be that older person who can't tell the difference. So there was recently, to, to use a, um, an example of my favorite band, Oasis, uh, a version of Don't Look Back in Anger appeared on the internet with Liam singing it. Noel sings the uh, traditional version. And it transpired that it was an AI impersonation of Liam's voice because you could do AI voice impersonations now and it was scary good. So yeah. nothing's to be, be fair. If you were going to do an AI impersonation of anyone's singing voice, I feel like Liam Gallagher is maybe where you would start as one of the easiest ones to do. Sunshine. Oh, there you go. That was my impression. There you go. That was actually an AI uh, version right there. Yeah. And listener, you'll find out after this episode that neither of us were involved in this recording. It was just AI. (laughs) Just learned how stupid I am and how smart Graham is. Um, AI, though, in terms of soccer, I could see certainly in the near future... AI scouting reports, for example. Yeah. That seems like something that could be done now from ChatGPT, for example. It, it is happening right now. So in my research, I found a couple of startups, uh, one called AI Scouts and another one called Ensk AI or Ensky. Not entirely sure how to say that. But they use AI technology in scouting and recruitment. So they analyze videos of players and then they break the, those videos down and they kind of produce a report that analyzes those players' qualities, both technical and and, and physical. Um, I also found a company called Huddle, who work with uh, with Rangers here in Scotland. They've got a partnership, and so they analyze um, opposition performances. And once again, similar sort of thing, they produce 
reports on strengths and weaknesses of those teams. I presume that Rangers use that technology to also analyse their own performances and uh, and 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 produce those reports. In terms of, often a slight tangent here, but in terms of AI already being used in soccer, I believe the automated offside calls that we have seen in the Champions League this season and where are they in the World Cup as well? I can't remember. That seems like a lifetime ago. But those those automated offside calls, um, I believe, are AI based. So AI is already being used in the sport, even if it is only in a very limited capacity at the moment yeah it, it does feel like there is um course for it to expand though scouting reports okay they're already being done tactical analysis you could see that being done maybe watching hours and hours of game tape manually is a thing of the past but it doesn't feel unfeasible graham for coaching half-time coaching for example to be at least ai assisted or maybe even ai instructed or even we talked about sporting directors earlier why have a guy do it when you can have an ai survey the landscape and put together a team instead I I agree in principle. So I believe in terms of the information and analysis, yes, AI can help and will help in that regard. In fact, it sounds like Rangers and other clubs are already using that sort of information. But I think about what makes great managers great. I think of, you know, Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola and it's kind of their it's not just what they're saying, it's how they're saying it. It's what how they are as characters. It's their natural intensity and it's the fact that players want to fight for them and so you're always going to need that kind of human personality to deliver the knowledge if you get what I mean I I, I just I don't ever see a scenario where I mean maybe there will be a club at a lower level that does it as some sort of gimmick but put it this way I don't think there's going to be a chat a chat GPT manager in the Premier League anytime soon I think there might be a manager that uses AI as a tool that might already be the case, but it will always be the delivery will always be an important part of of management. Okay. GPTFC is that going to be a thing? <laughs> Just trying to think I out mean, the box here. It might already exist. It might already exist. It feels like someone, someone at some level, if we can have something like hashtag United or you know these different ways of approaching putting a soccer team together, um, it does feel like there's going to be some project somewhere in the world. And maybe it's going to become more prevalent as well, where AI is going to put a team together and, and manage a team, right? Brentford, maybe. Brentford yeah. will do it. Yeah, that feels like the club that that will uh, <laughs> that will uh, that will pioneer something there. Maybe Erling Haaland already is an AI. Have we thought about that? He might not. Well, he's, he's clearly a robot. So this, this is all a simulation, Ryan. That's true. This is all a simulation. Nothing is real. It doesn't matter. How depressing. It was just as depressing as I thought it would be, the answer to that question, Graham. <laughs> Anything more to say about AI before we... Uh, uh, just, just a couple other areas, areas that AI is being used in already. So um, health and things like load management and when players could experience injuries and predicting when players could experience injuries. I found a couple of um, startups in that area as well and then there's off the pitch stuff like broadcasting so i don't know if anyone has heard of a company called pixelot so we use them in some scottish games and basically they are unmanned cameras that track the ball and uh, kind of predict areas of action in a match and where that camera should be should be showing so the idea is that you set up the cameras around the pitch 
and then you don't need humans actually operating them at all they just kind of follow the ball and 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 that's very helpful for scottish football at a lower level it was very helpful i believe a number of clubs used that in like the covid times when we were when all clubs were like broadcasting their own match but maybe couldn't afford to have full broadcast teams showing their games they would get pixel on board and they'd put the cameras in place and so that's i read a number of articles around that time about pixel so they're a company that are deeply embedded in scottish football that's crazy. Maybe AI will be the first thing to make XG actually useful as well. We'll see. Time will tell. Time <laughs> oh, will he's tell. emboldened that yeah. Joe's not here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Please, Joe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Uh, thank you, Cigar, for that question very much indeed. Let's squeeze in one final one here from Chris Widener, who says, it's a quick one, guys, as I just said there. He's going to be traveling to Italy next fall. Okay. And was interested in going to see some Serie A games. What's the best way of going about this for Americans and how does it compare to other countries in Europe? This might be useful, says Chris, for other listeners planning trips abroad as well. Graham, I was traveling um, to southern Italy, as I mentioned previously on the feed. I was in Naples and Sorrento and Pompeii last week. I'm going to say it was 90% American travelers. So I think this will be um, quite helpful for our listeners potentially. It's, uh... So the thing is, I'll I'll be in Sorrento next month as well, and I barely go anywhere. So imagine my dismay when Ryan Bailey already did all the soccer videos in Sorrento for the Patreon <laughs> before me. I'm gonna have nothing. I was looking forward to oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be going abroad. There's gonna be good things to film. You've beaten me to it, Ryan what? Bailey, in exactly the same place I'm going to. Apologies, Graham, but I I took video of the Napoli three-time league winners banners. You can take the pictures when they've crossed out the three and put it back to two <laughs> if you like. How about that? Yeah, when they're in the bin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sorry, Napoli. I didn't mean that. You're going to win. It's Everything's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Um, I think the short answer for this, from my experience, uh, Graham, in terms of sourcing tickets in Serie A and maybe other European leagues, my experience is to just to go directly to the club's specific site. So when I buy Roma tickets here in Rome, you literally go to Roma's website and go through it. It's a bit clunky and it doesn't work properly because... Italy. Uh, and the same thing is uh, for Lazio and also for the FIGC, for the Italian FA site. When you buy national team tickets, it's, it's very much you just go to their direct site and you buy them there. And I've got to say, Graham, Roma now has digital tickets that you can put on your phone, which is very Ooh. impressive for a city that's 60 or 70 years in the past. So things are wow. looking up here, I would say. But I've also looked into like buying tickets in Germany, for example. And if you want to get Borussia Dortmund tickets, there are specific windows when they put the cheap ones on. So it'll be two or three games in advance when you can get the cheap ticket price. And this is something that's very common for fans in the UK because you can get a ticket for the Veteran Stadion for like 13 euros. So there are a lot of UK fans. If you live in London, it can be cheaper to go to the aforementioned Luton Airport, fly to Dortmund, get a ticket, and it's cheaper than buying like a Chelsea ticket, basically. So And, and there, are, there are fans in Britain who do that. I, yeah, I, I, I've seen videos of kind of London Dortmund supporters clubs because it's cheaper for them to go to games in Germany than it is to go to a Premier League game that is quite depressing Mm. um I haven't really done much traveling around Europe in terms of going from one city to the next um but when I have done that in terms of the traveling trains 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 seem to be the answer to a a lot of European traveling questions if you come to the UK anything but trains but in mainland <laughs> europe places like france and italy and spain trains generally seem to be quite good and 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 cheap so yep. i would maybe recommend that maybe ryan you have a bit more insight given that you live in mainland europe and in italy and chris's yep. question is about going to Serie A games 
but yeah, uh, yeah I totally. I, would... I, I sorry, just to uh, finish my thought. Um, I would totally echo what you were saying about go to the clubs. I have bought tickets off places like Viagogo and StubHub. I've only done that when I've not been able to get a ticket through an official club channel. I would always recommend an official club channel for buying your tickets. Yeah, likewise. Retweet that. And I actually looked on StubHub uh, earlier, and for like UK Premier League tickets, the only ones they had for what I could see were like VIP hospitality packages, which were insane money. So maybe maybe you're in the market for that, Chris. Maybe you're not. But uh, third-party resale sites probably not the way to go unless you have no other choice in that matter. And I'll also retweet, Graham, uh, as I tried to rudely interrupt you with the trains situation. The trains in Italy and in most of mainland Europe are excellent and, and cheap. And really, uh, that's the, the most common way to get around. There's no tailgating in uh, European soccer, let's say that. Um, people generally don't drive to the games, which is true in the UK as well, right? People don't, a lot of people, most people don't drive to the stadiums because there's nowhere to park the cars. They still drive to stadiums and then find there's nowhere to park the cars, as I have done many times over the course of my uh, supporting life. The, the trickiest thing I found, because um, I've driven to my share of games in the UK, when you go to away games and you go somewhere you haven't been or you're not very familiar with and you park on a street and then there's a kid who says, uh, five pounds to watch a car. <laughs> I've been there before. <laughs> and you're in a very difficult situation there because if you don't give them five pounds, your car is not safe. And if you do... Your car's still not safe and they know you've got money. So it's tricky. I've also parked in those car parks where you you, you pay like £20, which is quite a lot for parking in the UK. I know you've paid. What did you pay at LAFC again? Something outrageous. $50. Wow, incredible. So I know maybe US parking is slightly more, but £20 for parking for a football match in the UK is very expensive. And then they cram you into this car park and you have to wait until every single person comes back to the cars until anyone moves there's no kind of order to it so you can be sitting in a car park for like two hours afterwards there may be people at hospitality who are still getting like the three course meal as you're sitting in the car park (laughs) waiting to get out i've been in that position before wonderful stuff um chris the tldr is go to the specific uh clubs sites and feel free to message uh me uh if you want to talk more about italy as well because i can oh another tip um i've used this before find uh a supporters group of the club you're wanting to go to on twitter and just ask them because they'll they'll know better than certainly us and better than most people of how to buy tickets and what the best way is. Solid tip. There you go. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much to everybody who has submitted a question on this here listener questions episode. And Graham, thank you very much for you for upholding the majority of this conversation. Ah, oh, thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you again for joining us on this feed. We'll be back very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.